All right. I wonder how that made you feel. <laughs> we, uh, the last two weeks have been in uh, Peter's second letter. We've been kind of calling it Peter's second letter to the out of place at the church that are in exile across the world, persecuted and struggling and under pressure. I'll say this before we start. Peter's aim so far has been to encourage and strengthen the church. He's saying, look at Jesus. Don't let go of him. Hold on. His method was this kind of almost lovely, light, refreshing encouragement. His aim hasn't changed. <laughs> Our aim today hasn't changed. We still want to say, and we're holding on to Jesus. But the method of this chapter has really pivoted quite sharply. We've gone from, hey, let's look at the good thing and hold on to that. And now Peter turns and says, here's a really stark, serious warning. The buoyancy of chapter one has gone. But the aim is the same. And uh, as uh, Caitlin read, you might have had your own reaction to that phrase, false teaching, false teachers. It probably isn't uncommon for you to feel your nose kind of turn up at that phrase. In our kind of pluralistic post-Christian culture, we do hesitate with that kind of ultimate truth, ultimate falsehood, black and white. Here's the dividing line. We struggle with that kind of thing. But I want us to see this today flimsiness when it comes to what is true about God and his word is serious. Flimsiness when it comes to what is true about God and the gospel is not just serious, it's dangerous. You saw the author Leslie Newbegin worded it. He says, the relativism which is not willing to speak about truth but only about what is true for me is an evasion of the serious business of living. It is the mark of a tragic loss of nerve in our contemporary culture. It is a preliminary symptom of death. I think he's right. And whatever you felt as Caitlin read the chapter, we have to just begin where Peter begins in this section by recognizing that false teaching is real. It's inevitable. Here's what he says. Just like there were false teachers in the time of the Old Testament, now there will be false teachers among you that go against the obvious teaching of God's word. I was thinking about this week that anything valuable in our world will be counterfeited. I used to go on holiday as a kid and my mum would try to convince me that the knockoff ranger strips in the shops in Turkey were just as good as the real ones. They're not. They're not just as bad. Anything, money, tech product, high-end clothing, anything valuable in our world will get knocked off. Same is true of God's word. Jesus said that the word of God is the most long-lasting and valuable thing we have in this world. If that's true, it shouldn't surprise us that people will come and twist and counterfeit, knock off and substitute it for lies. So here's where we're going to go. Just two things. First, we have to be aware of the counterfeit faith. We find ourselves recognizing that that's a real thing. And then second, I want us to be assured. Be assured of the counterfeit's fate. Why don't we start there? Let's become aware of the counterfeit faith. When I was at uni first year uh, in Dundee, I went to our first CU, or my first CU weekend away, and a couple of my fellow first years got asked to do a pub quiz, classic CU style. They did a pub quiz on Saturday evening. And uh, these two guys were from Northern Ireland, first time away from home. 
and their big kind of crescendo question that they thought was really, like they'd spotted something really cool. Their question was, how do you spell Lidl's knockoff version of Iron Brew? <laughs> and so everyone is writing, iron, like the literal words, Iron Brew, because that is what it is. And they're big like, you'll never believe how crazy this is. Lidl's version of Iron Brew is spelled I-R-N-B-R-U. Isn't that so crazy? And everyone in the room that is from Scotland is just like, what are these guys talking about? They went into Lidl, they've just seen Iron Brew. They've been like, look at how that spell, that must be fake. And they've been buying Lidl's crap version and thinking, Iron Brew's not very nice. <laughs> they were not aware of the real good joy of Iron Brew. They were only aware of a knockoff. They couldn't tell the difference at all. And uh, when we are not aware, when we're not well acquainted with the true thing, it becomes just as hard for us to distinguish between what is genuine and what is a cheap knockoff. So here's some good news. Peter provides us, he provides his readers with three really simple tells, three easy ways to spot the counterfeit faith. Let's just work through those for the first kind of bit of our time together. The first thing he says, the counterfeit faith has a different authority. Have a look with me at verses 2 and 3. Peter says this, many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. And here's a question for you to think about. How do you know what you know? How do you know what you know? Philosophers love to think about this question. The fancy word for this question is epistemology. How do we know things? The study of how we know things. And here's the two main ways that we kind of answer that question in our day. First is, since the Enlightenment period, we have this kind of rational, scientific way of knowing what we know. In other words, we come to know what we know by careful study, perfect logic, by our sheer intelligence, the more that we can understand and master the world, the closer we can get to truth. In recent years, another common way of thinking is, whatever feels right to me must be true. We can call that a kind of emotional epistemology. I feel this way, I feel like this thing is right, so it must be right. My feelings can never be questioned. I feel like I want to do X, Y, or Z, so it must be okay. If you're a Christian in the room this morning, though, we have to come at this question in a completely different way. Here's the way that we might put it. We know what we know about God, life, and how to live, not by emotional reasoning or scientific study, but by revelation. We know what we know because God has revealed it to us. Here's how the book of Hebrews puts it. This is long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things and through whom also he created the world. You see how Hebrews agrees with what we actually saw Peter say last week and now we see him say the, the negative of this week. The prophets in the Old Testament were carried along by God the Spirit. In other words, God himself revealed himself to the writers of the Bible. 
And he's revealed himself even more fully in the person and the work of Jesus. When we look at Jesus in the Bible, we see the clearest picture of God that we will get this side of eternity. That is how we know what we know. Not by working really hard to figure it out. Not by sitting and saying, God, give me a feeling, give me a sense. No, we we look at what God has said. That is how we know what we know. And so Peter wants his readers to be aware, to be cautious, to hold at arm's length people that would come to them with a teaching that isn't rooted in the unchanging word of God, but in the flimsy, changing opinions of people. Their authority isn't God's self-revelation, but their imagination. So he says they will exploit you with fabricated stories. He says they're just making it up. They're making it up. Do you see how this doesn't just function as a kind of judgment on false teachers? Honestly, if we're just standing here today saying, look at those guys out there that are wrong, we're wasting our time. Peter isn't just trying to say, look at those bad false teachers. He's trying to turn a mirror to us. Say, here's a warning. They are trying to exploit you with fabricated stories. The temptation for us today is to take God's word and uh, use it as a kind of pick and mix, like Ian said, to believe that kind of postmodern lie that we are the one that gets to decide what is true and what's not, that we kind of come to the word of God and maybe we love what it says about growing in intimacy with God. We love prayer. We we love worship. We think, oh, God calls me to that life with him. I love that. And then we read Jesus saying to somebody, if you would follow me, sell all you have and give it to the poor. And we think, I don't like that so much. Maybe we read about God's mercy and we love that, but we hate the idea that he is holy. The Bible doesn't work like that. You don't get to take what you like and leave what you don't when it comes to God's revelation. St. Augustine put it this way. He said, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it is not the gospel you believe but yourself. It is not the gospel you believe but yourself. Peter's first warning is that we have to believe God, not ourselves. Because his word is clear, it is sufficient, it is trustworthy, and it is true. And counterfeit Christianity finds its authority somewhere other than God's word. There's tell number one. How do we know if something is false teaching, its authority is somewhere other than God's word? Second tell, says Peter, they have a different message, different authority, a different message. Commentators will kind of disagree on what the actual false teaching is that Peter is addressing here. That that's always going to happen when we have just a letter and we're peering into history through a letter. It's hard to know some things, but it seems like it might have been two things. And we'll look at the second one in a few minutes, but the first one just seems to be this. The false teachers have taken Christianity and they've stripped it of sin and judgment. So Peter's long and... To us, it feels a bit rambly, kind of journey into the Old Testament. Seems to tip us off to what he's trying to address. And we'll look at the specifics later, but for now, just notice this. He seems to want to counter the idea that God's judgment is never going to come. In the minds of the false teachers, in the minds of the church that they're leading astray, Jesus isn't going to return, in the words of the creed that we said together last week, to judge the living and the dead. 
This is why Peter says that in verse 1, they even deny the master that bought them. These are Christians. The master that bought them. So we're not off the hook. This isn't about bad non-Christians. This is about you and me. These are Christians that have stripped their faith of sin and judgment, of any need for salvation. And just be blunt, if we do that, we have stripped Christianity of Christ himself. They've filed away their faith into a kind of feel-good humanism. We see this all the time today. Our temptation is always in our day and age to water down Christianity into a kind of self-help for the spiritual. A system of moral guidance. This is what Mark Sayers, the cultural commentator, calls the kingdom of God without the king. We want the trappings of a Christian culture, equality and freedom and love, but we don't want the Christ that stands right at the head of those things. Christianity isn't Christianity without Christ. This is why the Apostle Paul says this to the church in Galatia, if even we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Peter is trying to shake us awake today. Please don't find yourself falling into a faith that has more emphasis on this life than the next. Don't find yourself falling into a faith that has no space for sin and judgment. He's desperate to convince us of this. Those who want to convince you that Jesus won't come back, that this life is all there is, they are wrong. In fact, a faith that is more focused on comfort and prosperity today than eternal life, ironically, just leads directly to God's judgment. A faith that says, God won't judge, invites God's judgment. That is, that is Peter's point. Here And this is why the Bible is so strong about this awkward topic that we don't want to deal with, false teaching. Because if there is no other way to be saved than through Jesus alone, what kind of God would God be if he didn't tackle that issue head on? Can you imagine an oncologist who has a patient who's been convinced by some sham doctor that chemotherapy is just a scam? that oncologist would be very angry because his patient that he cares for is being led astray into things that will kill them ultimately. You know, God is kind to us to give us passages like this. It might feel like a weird thing to say, but he's kind to tell us clearly that Jesus is the only way. He's kind to tell us clearly, to warn us that anything but Jesus leads to death and hell. Because it's true. See, it's not in passages like this that God is petty and judgmental. He's not in heaven like, I wish that you would pay me more attention. I wish that you came to church more. Like, I just, I really need something from you. No, he's not petty and judgmental. He is love. And he sees you in your sin and says, nothing else but Christ works. Listen to me. And we were made by Jesus. 
We're made for Jesus and through him. And the only message that can bring you home is the message of the gospel. Christ's birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return. So Peter's second tale is this. Counterfeit faith will not preach the message of free grace through Jesus. It will not preach the message of freedom from sin and death through Jesus. It will preach anything else but that. Second tale, a different authority, a different message. Tell number three, they have a different way of life. If you have your Bible there, would you look at verse 14 with me? Peter says this, he says, with eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. And then down to verse 17. These people are springs without water, mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. You know, a few years ago, uh, I was speaking with somebody who was really heavily involved with um, reintegrating ex-prisoners into society. And he shared a bit with me about the kind of systemic difficulty that happens the moment somebody steps onto the street coming out of prison. The only family and friends they might know are still in a life of drugs and crime. They find themselves on the street with nowhere to live and with no job. And the only way to get food and shelter often is just to go straight back to where they came from. Workplaces refuse to accept them. They say, I'm just not sure about you because of your conviction. In our culture, reoffending rates are so high because we just don't support or trust those that are leaving prison. Even if somebody leaves with a kind of inkling of a desire for a new life, even if they have genuinely been rehabilitated, the old life often sucks them back in. I say that because I think Peter paints a similar picture here of what false teachers are doing to the people in this church. You know, like a drug dealer tempting and drawing in an ex-addict crying, like kind of preying on their weaknesses. These false teachers peddle the lie that Christians who have just been saved from sin can find freedom and joy in the very thing they've just been saved from. It's the kind of picture he's painting when he says that returning to sin is like a dog returning to its vomit. What they don't understand and what we often don't understand when we live lives of sin is this, Christ didn't die to make sin permissible. He didn't die so that you could say, well, I'm glad the punishment is gone. I'm going to continue living the life I used to live. No, he died to free us from the presence of sin as well as the punishment of sin. Peter's tale is this, keep an eye on any major false teaching and at the end of the road, it always leads to sin. Whether that's a kind of health and wealth, prosperity gospel that leads us just to idolize money and, and be greedy. Or it's a kind of progressive faith that 
paints abortion and casual sex as empowering. False teaching always finds itself offering freedom. And when we take the bait, it delivers slavery. Every single time, and it's because its definition of freedom is utterly skewed. You know, in our culture, we tend to view freedom as what we could call negative freedom, which means we're free to do whatever we want to do. No consequences, nobody tells me what to do, I'm free. But the Bible does not think that even exists. It's not a real thing. We're always living for something, says the Bible. Peter puts it this way in our passage. We are slaves to whatever masters us. So freedom, in the imagination of the writers of the Bible, is always positive freedom. Never negative freedom. Positive freedom. It means the freedom to be a servant of something good. The freedom to be constrained within healthy boundaries. It means we're not free when we live however we like. We're free when Jesus destroys the power of sin and calls us to live in the life that he made us for. All All of that to say, we've got to be aware of counterfeit faith. And we need to remind ourselves that God's word is our authority, that God's gospel is our message, and that God's way is our way of life. It's uncomfortable, but false teaching is real. And we are living dangerously if we're not on our guard. It's not hard to see that in our day and age. Just like the original readers of this letter, we are tempted to trust ourselves over God. To remove sin and judgment from faith, to remove the king from the kingdom, and to return to what the Bible calls sin and the world calls freedom. Those are very real temptations for us. So then we need to answer the question, what do we do with that? I'm aware, I'm aware that there's a danger. What do I do? Well, I just want to convince you that Peter is a very good person to listen to on this one. There's a story in the Gospels of Peter. He comes to Jesus and everyone has abandoned Jesus. He is surrounded by other Gospels, by people telling him, don't follow Jesus, he's got it wrong. And he looks at Jesus in the eyes. Jesus asks him, Will you leave me too? And he says, Lord, where would I go? You have the words of eternal life. The same Peter that wrote this letter was warned by Jesus. He said, Peter, the devil has requested to sift you like wheat. Peter knows the significance of this conversation. He's not writing from a kind of ivory tower, academic. Let me just tell you about false teaching. He knows this is serious. This is a serious conversation. And so I want us to listen to his answer to this problem. What hope does he offer up in response to all this? When the church is a minority and we're struggling to see how this is even worth clinging on to and there's voices all around saying, man, this thing isn't even valid anymore. What do we do? Well, Peter wants us to be assured. Now that we're aware of the counterfeit faith, he wants us to be assured of the counterfeit faith. In Psalm 77, uh, a man called Asaph uh, writes this song, this poem to God, and he's calling out to God for help. And he, he just feels like God isn't there anymore. God isn't answering him, and he struggles to feel assurance that God even is who he says he is. 
he asked this really simple question, has God forgotten? Has God forgotten who he said he would be for us? And the way he responds is really instructive for us as we read this section of 2 Peter. To remedy Asaph's fear of God's forgetfulness, he remembers God's faithfulness. Let me read to you from verse 10 of Psalm 77. It says, Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. If you read on, he goes on to recount all of God's goodness to Israel in the past. And he finds himself at the end of the psalm, not afraid anymore, but sure, certain that God will be the same God in the future as he was in the past. And that's... Peter's approach here is that he kind of jumps in a time machine and takes his readers to the past to reassure them about the future. He goes to three stories. The first, we don't have even time to deal with. I'm just going to put it to the side. <laughs> if you want to talk about it, come grab me. Angels and judgment. The other two we know about. The other two are more famous to us. First is Noah, verse 5. You know, like us, if you know the story, Noah was out of place. The Bible says he was the only man on the face of the earth that was following God. People all around him had moved on. You know the story. God sends a flood. He sees the sin of everyone else and he sends a flood to judgment. But he saves Noah through the water in an ark. Second story, verse 6 onwards, is the story of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. The ancient cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were very similar to our cities today. We use them as words for like the most depraved evil. Really, they were unjust. They were cruel to the poor. And they were hotbeds of sexual immorality. If that's not Glasgow, I don't know what is. Peter says this, God didn't let them get away with it. He judged their sin. But... He saved his people. Lot, Abraham's nephew, was saved from God's anger. And do, you see his, do you see his point when Caitlin was reading earlier? He says, if God knew how to do it then, don't we know now that God knows how to rescue his people and to judge those who do evil? Peter looks backward to look forward and his point is very simple. God's loving justice will prevail. Now to us today that means this. God sees you struggling to follow Jesus in the midst of pressure all around you. He sees your desire to love and serve him. He sees your commitment to the gospel when alternative gospels are ringing in your ears. And he makes a promise. I am on my way. He also makes a warning. Don't give up. Don't give up. First glance, these verses are hard. We're adverse to judgment, but I just put it this way. Christ loves his bride, the church, far too much not to punish those who would lead her astray. Christ hates those who would try to convince his bride not to show up for the wedding. 
He hates teaching that woos his bride into unfaithfulness. What kind of groom would Jesus be otherwise? If you're married, or just showing up on your wedding day and hearing, yeah, well, the bride just decided to go off with another man. You go, well, who am I to tell her what's best for her? I don't really have that authority. You know, Jesus is a good groom. <laughs> he cares about his bride. He cares about the church. You know, the classic line to the bridesmaid in a groom's speech is, thank you so much for getting her ready on time, and everyone kind of laughs together. You know, those who teach and lead Jesus' church have a kind of similar role. I wonder if Ian and Johnny would like it if I said, really for us, Ian and Johnny are the bridesmaids to this church. They're here to help us get ready. (laughs) For some people, the privilege and holy joy of helping Christ's bride get ready for the wedding day has turned into a kind of flippant way to get money and fame. No wonder Jesus' anger burns against a kind of fake bridesmaid that leads his church astray. If you think I'm lying, here's how Jesus himself put it. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. It was Jesus that said that. He cares about this stuff. He is serious about your commitment to truth, about you not being led away from him. It doesn't sound like a Jesus that isn't concerned about his people. God's justice will come. Jesus promised the gates of hell cannot and will not prevail against his church. Let me just caveat something for you here, though. God's anger isn't rash. Verses don't point to a kind of petulant God who is just sitting waiting for something to spark his anger so that he can uh, be wrathful. No, these verses point to a God whose wick is very very long. Maybe we could say he's thoughtfully wrathful. In fact, we'll see next week as Ian finishes this short series how God is patient, how he's calling those who are against him to return home. God is always patient. Nobody is beyond the pale. But when Jesus' wick runs out to be found leading his bride astray, His anger is fierce, and his anger is just. Briefly before we finish, it is more than just God's wrath on display here. Peter, in verse 17, describes these teachers as empty mists and springs without water. Again, it's not that God is arbitrarily angry. He's not just kind of picking and choosing what he doesn't like. In fact, he just sees the total emptiness of a life without Christ. Springs without water. Abby and I, um, a while ago, were just flicking through random YouTube videos one night, and we found this kind of documentary about this guy who was doing a marathon or an ultramarathon in the Sahara, and he got lost off the trail. And for about a week, he wandered around the Sahara, and he just ran, trying to find people. And he couldn't, and he ended up having to drink his own urine every day. He found a bat, and he killed it with his bare hands and ate it. He just was on death's door, 
choking for a drink. Can you imagine him walking up and seeing what he thinks is a spring of water and it's empty? Can you imagine the pain of that kind of thirst? The Bible wants you to feel that pain, that desperation when it comes to what is true. No other way but the way of Jesus leads to life. No other spring but the spring of Jesus is full of water. He called himself the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said that nobody comes to the Father except through him. If you're visiting this morning, maybe you're trying to find water in a spring that has no water in it. Maybe you're living life under your own authority, just choosing what to believe, doing what you want, living a life in sin and addiction that you just can't break. Maybe you've been led by the church even to believe some lies about God. Here's God's message to you today. Come back to Jesus. He is the only spring that is overflowing with clean water. And if you're in Christ today, if you're a Christian in this room, this harsh sounding chapter is good news. It's good news. One day the exile will end. One day the lies will stop ringing in your ears. One day Christ will return and bring true justice once and for all. Truth and not lies will win. Righteousness, not sin, will fill the earth. Jesus, not those who hate him, will reign. The invitation this morning is this. Come to the kingdom that lasts. Come to the kingdom that has truth on its side. Like Noah, come to the ark. Come to Jesus. Hide yourself in Jesus and be saved through the waters of God's wrath that, let me just promise you, is coming. And we don't like to hear that, but it's true. Jesus is on the way. A reckoning is coming, says Peter. So hold firm. Peter looks to the struggling church surrounded by lies and sin and just says this. It is worth sticking with it. It is worth hanging on. It is worth being the remnant. It is worth fighting to resist lies and sin. Hold firm. Christ is on the way. And next week we'll dive more into the hope of Christ's return. But this week we just see this. God will bring justice. So don't give up. Continue in the way of love that he has called us to. Don't give in to sin. Don't give in to lies. Hold on to Jesus. In one of Jesus' more difficult teachings, he says this. I wonder if you would just receive this as his encouragement to you this morning. At that time, he says, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Let me pray for us.